Blog Talk Radio. What it do, bitches? What it do? Welcome to the show, everybody. I am delighted to be with you here on this Monday. Um, A lot of stuff to talk about today. We have pro-choice protesters showing up at uh, Kavanaugh's house and the house of a number of the Supreme Court justices who want to overturn Roe versus Wade. We have Mitch McConnell floating the idea of a national abortion ban, a total ban on it. Oh boy, there's a lot to say about that. And the ideas not only go that far, they actually go even further than that. So, I mean, just wait till you hear it. You would have never thought in a million years that the ideas that we're going to be discussing as possible um, might actually happen. So hold on, I'm going to... Got to turn some AC on in here. It's a little warm. But I also have Bill Maher going full smug elitist. Um, He rips free college. I mean, this is a guy who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016, and then now he uh, shits on every single progressive idea that's like a bedrock progressive idea. Uh, We have Meghan McCain released a book, and it flopped so incredibly hard that I almost feel bad for her. Stress on the word almost, but this thing was an embarrassment. So we'll talk about that. And then Biden praises working with segregationists. I mean, I got so much shit. I don't even know what to do with it all. I don't. All right. So without further ado, let's get started. And we'll do that with the pro-choice protesters. Okay. 
So something happened yesterday that's getting uh, quite a bit of traction, and there's quite a bit of conversation going on around it. Um, about 100 pro-choice protesters showed up at Brett Kavanaugh's house after we learned that the Supreme Court is probably going to overturn Roe versus Wade. So let me throw up that graphic for you here. This is in Bloomberg. Abortion rights protests target homes of Kavanaugh and Roberts. About 100 protesters march between their Maryland houses. It follows leak of draft opinion overturning Roe versus Wade. So um, this is, I mean, this is definitely a first, uh, I, at least I think. As far as I know of, it's a first. Correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Um, and this is following the other first of the leak, the leak of a Supreme Court decision. Now, you know, people on the political right are sort of trying to make that the bulk of the conversation, the fact that there was a leak as opposed to the substance of a leak of the leak. And I find that incredibly disingenuous because I don't even see what the issue is with a leak. In fact, I don't think there is an issue. It's just sort of like a mucked up issue. And the only argument you can make is this violates like civility and tradition and the norms, but who cares? Who cares? You know, I would support a leak of any and all of the decisions, even if it's a decision that cuts in the direction that I would agree with politically. I just don't see the problem with it. And I don't think the people who are criticizing it really see a problem with it either. I think they're just trying to gin up some fake outrage around that. So, but now this is a new first showing up to the Supreme Court justices' houses. So let me read you a little bit from this. About 100 protesters took the battle over abortion rights to the homes of two conservative U.S. Supreme Court justices Saturday night. Now, I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but um, Kavanaugh is, was actually worse in terms of his take on this case. Roberts had uh, a much different take, which, again, I'll, I'll describe in a little bit. Um, this is five days after a leaked draft opinion suggested the court is poised to overturn Roe versus Wade. Uh, bearing, signs, bearing signs and chanting slogans, the group marched from Brett Kavanaugh's house in Chevy Chase, Maryland, to Chief Justice John Roberts' residence about half a mile away. The protesters then returned to Kavanaugh's before police ordered them to disperse. It wasn't clear whether either justice's family was home. The protest was a fresh demonstration of the growing vitriol over abortion as the court considers eliminating constitutional protections. The issue exploded Monday when Politico published the leak of the draft opinion. So they talked to somebody who helped organize the protests, and uh, there's a quote here from them. The person's name is Lacey Wooten Holloway, 39 years old. Quote, the time for civility is over. Being polite doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, Kavanaugh is one of five justices um, who cast a preliminary vote to overturn Roe. CNN later reported that Roberts opposed overturning Roe completely and was trying to forge a compromise that would leave parts of the ruling intact while upholding a Mississippi law that limits abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy. Okay, so let me explain what's happening there a little bit, because that's actually really interesting. So the way Roe versus Wade works, they set up what's called the trimester standard. So in the first trimester, or the first one-third of the pregnancy, um, it, the government cannot regulate it, cannot ban it. Uh, basically, it's the total right of the woman to choose during that first trimester. Now, under Roe, in the second trimester, uh, states are allowed, if they so choose, to do some basic health regulations around that. Um, and then with the third trimester, states are allowed, if they so choose, to ban abortions in that third trimester. That was Roe versus Wade. So this notion, you know, that Roe versus Wade is like this far-left idea is just factually not true. In fact, it's a very moderate framework, if you ask me, and it's very nuanced in terms of what's allowed and what isn't allowed. Now, after Roe, there was this case called 
uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992. And in that case, though they largely upheld Roe versus Wade, they changed the standard slightly. So instead of going by the trimester standard, they went by the fetal viability standard. So it basically made it so that um, abortion is still allowed as a right early on in the pregnancy, but you're allowed to do some regulations, including some maybe slightly more onerous regulations post viability of the fetus. So we've inched slightly in a more conservative direction since Roe versus Wade with that Casey standard. And what John Roberts was trying to do, now, by the way, John Roberts cares a lot about what, what would, one would call the integrity of the court. So in other words, he wants to make sure that they don't become irrelevant and dismissed as previously in U.S. history, the court has when they've gone extreme, when they've gone too extreme, they sort of lose their potency and people don't want to abide by the rulings at all. And so I think he cares about that more so than the other justices. And so he wanted to basically do another slight weakening of the Casey standard and maybe shift that line up that you can regulate or ban abortion to 15 weeks or later, as opposed to like 20 weeks or later. So it's very interesting. The, the politics of this decision is very interesting. Um, Roberts was trying to be a more nuanced voice, a more moderate voice, but he was dealing with the likes of Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett and Gorsuch and, and uh, Clarence Thomas. And of course, they're of the opinion, just, you know, totally ax row and leave the issue completely up to the state so that if Mississippi, for example, or Alabama wants to ban abortion completely, they can ban abortion completely. Roberts did not want that. And again, I think the reason why he didn't want it is because he's concerned about the long-term integrity of the court, and um, they might lose standing in the eyes of the American people if they go too extreme. So uh, that's all interesting to me. So <clears throat> they continue here and say, Roberts and Kavanaugh earlier declined to comment on the protests. The court, as a matter of policy, does not discuss security arrangements, Supreme Court spokeswoman Patricia McCabe said Friday. Fencing was erected around the Supreme Court building this week, much like the barriers put up after the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. So they, they erected, as soon as we learned from Politico what was going on with this decision, um, they erected security fencing around the Supreme Court. And, of course, people showed up at the Supreme Court pretty much immediately after that. Now, everything to this point has been totally peaceful. So, you know, you could argue maybe they're being a little too sensitive. But, look, I get it. If you're on the Supreme Court or if you're a politician, the idea of having extra security I don't find absurd. Now, the deeper question gets to what these specific protesters did. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it, you know, neither? And here's my take on it. I think that whoever basically did the doxing, which gave away the addresses, I don't think doxing is acceptable. I think doxing, even when it comes to like social media terms of service and um, what should and shouldn't be allowed in terms of free speech on various social media outlets, I always add that to my list of the very few things that, you know, you shouldn't be allowed. So you can't do direct threats of violence. You can't do targeted harassment. Um, very few things. Doxing, I think, is on that list. And outside of the very basic things, it's, it, we should totally embrace free speech. You can't censor somebody based on the content of what they say or their political opinion. But doxing is on that list of like, look, that goes too far. Because inherent in doxing is a threat. I think it's a violation of uh, people's privacy to some extent. So I don't like the doxing in the first place, but keep it real. After the doxing happened, that one person is at fault. The protesters themselves, I really don't have any issue with protesters going to a Supreme Court justice's place and 
basically standing up for what they think is right and being totally peaceful. That's the crucial point of it. Is, and a lot of people say, oh, my God, this is extreme. Oh, my God, this goes too far. Oh, my God, we've opened this door. And, look, the fact of the matter is who really opened the door? The Supreme Court opened the door by deciding we're going to take away something that has been viewed since 1973 as a fundamental right. So, you know, if you don't want protesters to show up to your house and do this, maybe don't take away people's constitutional rights. Now, you might think that's a flippant or a glib response. I really don't think that's flippant or glib. I really don't. And I agree with the interpretation that it kind of is a right. And so if somebody comes to take those away, you know, it calls for a a drastic response. Now, again, if any of this had turned violent, I would immediately turn on it and say, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. That's also immoral. That's also unethical. But the fact of the matter is, like, this is the compromise position. The compromise position is, like, you know, let's go protest about this. And the fact that it's uncomfortable as to how they're doing the protest is the point of the protest. Hey, maybe you'll stop and think twice before you make a decision that's going to affect millions of people in a negative fashion. Now, is it actually going to work in terms of changing their minds? Well, probably not. Probably not. But there should be social pressure that's brought to bear and consequences for terrible actions. I wish that Dick Cheney and George W. Bush could never leave their house without, uh, you know, feeling like I'm a pariah. There should be protests when they go to the grocery store. You know, they should be reminded every day of their lives. You have the blood of hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis on your hands. So, uh, you know, this is one of those instances where the doxing should have never happened in the first place. So we should know where these people live. But after that doxing happened... It's par for the course that you're going to have protests that target them. Now, again, I want to reiterate, everything's been peaceful. If it wasn't peaceful, then I would condemn it because I'm a strong believer in peaceful protests and I'm a big opponent of violent protests or rioting. Um, But there was no rioting. Uh, Nothing hasn't been peaceful. So I don't really see a reason to criticize this. And remember, I took a lot of crap as well. I don't know how many of you agree with my take on this or don't, but... I'm consistent on this, man. I took a lot of crap as well when I came out in favor of what uh, a bunch of protesters did with Kirsten Cinema. She was being a professor, and, you know, she you had people who were protesting for her to support Build Back Better. They went to her classroom, and they started, you know, talking to her, saying, look, I can't get a meeting with you. I'm one of your c- constituents, and you shut me out, and instead you're meeting with the pharma lobbyists, and you're meeting with big money interests and corporations. So I don't have $100,000 to give you to meet with you. So now I'm going to come and confront you to your face. And then they followed her into the bathroom, and they were pressing her on her inability to vote for Bill Back Better. Now, it didn't end up working, but as a matter of principle, that's a tactic I support. Look, the line is violence. That's the line. The line is violence. If that line isn't crossed, then you should support any and all actions to try to bring accountability for these people's actions. So really, the chain of events started with what? Started with the decision that we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, and we're going to leave it up to states to take away the right to an abortion. And now we're even having a conversation, we'll get to this later, about a national abortion ban in all 50 states. That's on the table. You know what else is on the table? Certain states banning all different forms of contraception, like an IUD or like you know the morning after pill or like condoms. This is actually in the conversation now. So what is the response to such extremism? What is the proper response to such extremism? 
The proper response is to use any and every tool at our availability to try to bring about change. And if that means making some elitist ghouls uncomfortable, so be it. So be it. Now, again, the doxing should have never happened in the first place, and whoever did the doxing, I would have no problem with that being illegal and some sort of action being taken against the doxer through official legal channels. But once that's done, okay, it is what it is. And look, when you talk about politicians, when you talk about the president or people in the executive branch, when you talk about the judicial branch, these people have phenomenal power. And you don't want them to be insulated from the consequences of their actions. And so this is a natural consequence of you making a decision that is completely unpopular. There's one poll that's up to 70% of the country says don't overturn Roe. Now, it depends how you ask the question about abortion. That'll you know, determine what answer you get. But there's some polls as few as 5% of the country want to see abortion totally banned, as high as 19% of the country says abortion should be illegal in all circumstances. When that's your decision, yes, there's going to be consequences for that action, and you need to live with those consequences. And if it makes you think twice the next time you overturn precedent to go in a more draconian and authoritarian direction, well, then that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And look, keep it real. You've got to be consistent on this. got to be consistent. Does this mean that, you know, let's say in a hypothetical world, you have President Bernie Sanders gets us Medicare for all. And then you have some pharma-funded ghouls on the far right who somebody, some single bad actor, you know, doxes Bernie's vacation home or whatever. He's on vacation. And then you have some right-wingers who show up there but they're peaceful, but they're protesting against single-payer health care. And they're arguing, you know, they have pictures of Bernie, like Stalin or something, and the hammer and sickle, and they're arguing that he's like a dictator or whatever. Well, that's, if you're being consistent, you'd say, even in that circumstance, they kind of have a right to do that. They're not violating any law, you know. You can get into the specifics of, uh, well, are they trespassing or whatever, but really, that's allowed. That's like core First Amendment stuff. Again, as long as violence isn't happening, it is what it is. It's par for the course. So I'm consistent on this. The doxing should have never happened, and it shouldn't happen of any of these people. But once it does happen, if people learn where a politician lives, a Supreme Court justice lives or whatever, they're allowed to protest peacefully. So, and by the way, there was something on Twitter. I don't know if this is accurate, but somebody on Twitter said um, – one of the arguments that was being made was like, okay, we get it about Kavanaugh, but what about the neighbors? What if you're, like, upsetting the neighbors? And uh, the response was one of the organizers said, I am a neighbor. I am one of Kavanaugh's neighbors. That's one of the re- I guess that's one of the reasons why they found out where he is, right, where he lives. So I just, look, it's hard to get upset about breaches of decorum and civility when rights are getting taken away. Now, from their perspective, they say, well, it never should have been a right in the first place. Okay, fair enough. But then there's people, myself included, who think, well, it kind of is a right. It's going to be a hard time. You're going to have a hard time convincing me that it's not a right, at least up until the point where the nervous system is created in the fetus, and so therefore the fetus can feel pain. I think that's a different moral question, a different ethical question. I have a somewhat moderate stance on abortion, but I think Roe versus Wade got it right overall. And so don't tell me that, you know, should have the right to force a woman to be an incubator, even when we're talking about super early on in the pregnancy. I, no, no. And that's what, they, that's what they're doing here. 
That's what they're doing. Send it back to the states. It's going to be banned in over 20 states. And there's consequences to that, man. There really are. So uh, I'll just give you a little bit more from this article because there's still a whole bunch of interesting stuff in this. So White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki on Thursday declined to criticize the practice of protesting outside of Justice's home. Quote, I don't have an official U.S. government position on where people protest, she said. We want it, of course, to be peaceful. I actually totally agree with that position. I totally agree with it. Now, of course, she would change her tune if they started, the protesters started targeting her, and she would be a hypocrite in that instance, right? But I think she's right with what she says here. And by the way, kind of surprising, because I would have guessed that they would immediately do this. The traditions, the norms, the civility, how dare you do that? But she didn't. But other Democrats did. Senate Judiciary Committee Chairman Dick Durbin of Illinois, a Democrat, this week criticized protest, protests at the homes of justices and other public officials as demeaning an adolescent. Demeaning an adolescent. Actually, think it's people trying to fight for what is right and using one of the tools available, which is one that we rarely use. Quote, the events of the past week have intensified the focus on the Supreme Court justices' families who are unfortunately facing threats to their safety in today's increasingly polarized political climate. Now, that's what John uh, Cornyn said. He's a Republican, I think, from Texas. Now, if, they are, if families are experiencing threats, I totally condemn that. Nobody should be threatening anybody. Um, and I don't think it's a fair argument to say, you know, well, since the decision is so bad and so wrong and taking away constitutional rights, therefore the families, it's legitimate to threaten the families. I don't agree with that. I don't agree with that. Direct threats of violence are wrong, period, across the board. And, you know, the families of these people didn't do it. And even if you're threatening the individuals, again, that's not how you handle situations like this. That is, a, you know, you don't do an immoral or unethical action to counter an immoral and unethical action. That's just adding to the amount of wrongness and immorality in the question. So I don't agree with that. But I don't even know if that's accurate, by the way. It's a Republican senator who said it. Who knows what he's basing it on? I haven't seen any articles that say there have been direct threats. Um, I did see, though, and this one, this one we will condemn uh, wholeheartedly, there was, uh, there was an attack. You know, I don't know if it was just a vandalized office or if there was some explosive or something, but there was an attack on one of those pro-life organizations, and somebody wrote where they did it uh, as long as abortions um, – aren't safe, you aren't either, something to that effect. That, that I don't agree with. Again, you can't do any sort of violence because the violence by, by its very nature is wrong unless it's defensive, right? And this isn't a case of, it's not defensive. It's not this abortion group, uh, you know, that overturned it. And again, even if they did overturn it, it's something that we have to debate and that we need to get the right policy conclusions implemented. But you have to do that in a way that doesn't destroy what is actually moral and ethical in the country. So in other words, you, again, you can't resort to immoral and unethical actions to counter immoral and unethical actions. That's just you being a hypocrite. And that's just you saying, I'm not really against the immorality and the unethical nature of it. I'm just against their side. And that is not okay. Again, we want to, every, every legal and peaceful method to fight back, we should use, which is why I'm a defender of the protesters who showed up at their houses. Because it is legal and it is peaceful. That's all, that's all I need to know, right? So, but it's not legal to, I don't know if they used a pipe bomb or if they just vandalized the office or whatever, to issue direct threats and to, you know, target one of those groups. It's just, it's not, it's a bad road to go down. And by the way, when the left tries to take on the right in 
the arena of violence that doesn't usually go well for the left, just the right that has all the weapons <laughs> and the, white, the right that's willing to use those violent tactics a hell of a lot more and more aggressively. So you just, you just don't want to open that door. But anyway, um, the events of the past week have intensified the folks on the Supreme Court justice families who are unfortunately facing threats uh, threat to their safety in today's increasingly polarized political climate. Roberts, who has ordered an investigation of the leak, that's also bullshit. You don't need an investigation. Um, on Thursday, called the leak absolutely appalling. No, what's appalling is the decision. The leak is not appalling. By the way, if the leak is appalling, why is it appalling? Is it because the decision itself is appalling? But no, you would argue, oh, it's just the, tra- the tradition being violating is appalling. That's not, tradi- that's not appalling at all. That's fine. So we learned about it a little bit early. So more information for the public is a good thing. And said the person responsible would be foolish to think it would affect the court's deliberations as the justices are scheduled to rule in the case by July. Unfortunately, I kind of agree with you. I think that um, it's going to affect the, their ruling. I don't. But I still think you have to uh, apply all the pressure you can. And... If it just makes them stop and think twice before issuing another horrendously terrible decision that negatively impacts millions of people, I'll take it. And um, we'll see if it does that. But, again, the doxing is wrong. Protesting is not wrong. And anybody who does pearl clutching over this is kind of annoying. It's kind of annoying. Because you can't care more about civility and decorum than real-world action to try to change things for the better and a lot of people do but everybody's so everybody's so hypocritical on the civility and decorum thing they only trot out concerns about civility and decorum when it's to protect their side that that's at least that's what i've witnessed you know if you if you flip the political situation and it's like a left-wing justice and a left-wing decision is coming down and right-wing protesters show up to their house then the right would be defending them and saying, look, it's first, it's first Amendment right. You might not like it, but they're doing what's perfectly legal and peaceful, so it's fine. But since it's, you flip it, and it's left-wing protesters, right-wing um, justice, all of a sudden it's, you know, this is egregious. Tim Poole said this might be civil war starting. <laughs> so anyway, there you have it. Um, again, the doxing is wrong, and um, that should be opposed. But the protests themselves, it's, this is politics 101, man. Direct action over a direct issue. It's peaceful. It's legal. That's all I got to know about it. Okay. Next. So now that we know... Roe versus Wade is likely going to be overturned by the Supreme Court. Uh, the question arises, well, what's next? Like, what's next for the pro-life movement? They put all, all this time and energy and focus into this one particular thing, this specific thing. Like, they're, they're winning on their main thing, overturning Roe versus Wade. Where do they go from here? Well, there's some chatter about that now, and it ain't pretty. So let's take a look at this. So this is in the Hill. McConnell says national abortion ban is possible. It's possible. The Arizona Mirror says GOP Senate candidate Blake Masters wants to allow states to ban contraception use. Holy cow. 
So this is the conversation that we're having now, guys. This is the conversation that we're having. Now, let me explain the mechanics of this again for people who might not know or haven't seen the other segments I've done on this, just so to catch everybody up. When you overturn Roe versus Wade, what that means is you're saying the states get to determine what their abortion policy is completely. The way it works with Roe versus Wade is in the first trimester of the pregnancy, it's a right. You have a right to an abortion. The second trimester of the pregnancy, they're allowed to put, states are allowed to put in some health regulations, but they can't ban it. And in the third trimester, if they so choose, they're allowed to ban it. Now, when you remove that, what is effectively a moderate framework, and leave it up to the states, what's going to happen is over 20 states, probably 24 is the number, are going to outright ban all abortions, all of them. Um, But you'd still have blue states where you're allowed to get an abortion, and they have their own regulations. So McConnell was asked in a USA Today interview, where do you guys go from here? Is a national abortion ban on the, on the agenda for Republicans if they take control, which they almost certainly will? And he says, look, it's possible. So they're opening the door to that. So in other words, that would be, not only is it illegal in all red states, it could be illegal in all 50 states. They could, the federal government could tell the blue states, you're not even allowed to have legal abortion. That's now on the table. And, and you also have, as you saw, there, and there's a number of these bills that are now floating around. Uh, Marsha Blackburn actually proposed a bill where only married couples are allowed to use contraception. You have various state-level Republicans saying we should ban contraception. They want to test that out. Hey, if we ban it in a certain state and we go through the court process, will the Supreme Court say, hey, there's nothing in the in the, our founding documents, there's nothing in the Constitution about condoms or IUDs or anything like that. So, of course, the founders didn't lay out a specific right for people to use those things. So, if Mississippi or Arkansas or whoever wants to ban condoms or IUDs or the morning after pill or whatever, they have every right to do that. Look at how they think about this stuff. The right of the state supersedes the right of the individual. That's why the whole states' rights thing has always been a canard. They invoke states' rights to take away individual rights. That's the, the whole conversation popped up in its most extreme form during segregation and Jim Crow. The argument from the conservative states was, oh, no, this has nothing to do with, like, race. This has to do with states' rights. So if we here in the South want to force black people to be second-class citizens, Well, that's the right of our state to make our own laws and rules over here. The federal government should butt out. So it was just a cover for authoritarian and draconian beliefs, like keeping black people second-class citizens. And now the states' rights thing is being used to crack down on reproductive rights. Hey, leave it up to the states. Yeah, but what if the states are violating personal and individual sovereignty and human rights? That don't care. It's not – the founders never said – You're allowed to get an abortion. They didn't put that in specific words, in specific language. So we're going to leave it up to the states to ban it. Guys, by the same logic, and we brought this up before, it's not hyperbolic to point it out. If the argument is, hey, these aren't rights that are, quote, deep-rooted in history, that's the language from the actual decision, 
what else isn't, quote, deep-rooted in history? Interracial marriage. That's not deep-rooted in history. That's relatively recent in the grand scheme of things. Should states have a right to ban that? Gay marriage is super recent. It's not deep-rooted in history. Should states have a right to ban that? By their interpretation of the Constitution, the answer is yes, they should. Yes, they should. What about physician-assisted suicide, which is legal in a couple states? That's certain. There's nothing in the Constitution about physician-assisted suicide. So they would say the founders never said anything about that specifically, so if states want to ban it, they have every right to ban it. Look at all of the things, personal things, human rights things, sovereignty things, liberty things, that they could just hand wave away and say the founders never said anything specific, so states are allowed to ban it if they want. And the, the massive irony, of course, is these are the same people who talk about small government. Like, I want to get the government out of your life. Well, certainly when it comes to social issues, they want the government as involved as humanly possible. They want to use the power and force of the state to mandate a traditional lifestyle. Traditional lifestyle. That is not small government. That's huge government. That's authoritarian government. And it's government getting involved in the worst possible ways. I would love it when the government gets involved to say, hey, here's the minimum wage. You need to pay your workers better. I like that kind of government intervention. The kind of government intervention I don't like is you can't marry that person. You're not allowed to take that substance. You're a woman. You can't, you can't decide to do that with your body, even if it's only four weeks in, let's say. Oh, man, it's not good, dog. It is not good. So now this is where they go. See, a lot of people, I don't think people truly understood the consequences of the beliefs of the far right when it comes to social issues. Because we've been having this conversation for years now of like, isn't wokeness so bad? Isn't cancel culture so bad? Isn't the authoritarian left horrendous? And what a lot of people probably lost sight of is just how authoritarian the authoritarian right is. Now you're seeing the consequences of that. They want to control your life. They do. They want to have all these unnecessary rules and regulations and red tape about how you can live. National abortion ban possible. Contraception ban in certain states possible. They just want to roll back that clock, man. They just want to roll back that clock, make the system more primitive, take away your ability to choose in a variety of fields. Now you know. Now you know. Now, remember, this is also massively out of lockstep with the majority of Americans. It just is. 19% want to ban abortion um, in all cases. 19%. And that's the high number. I've seen numbers as low as 5%. And this is the position now being repped to one extent or another by Republicans, elected Republicans. So, by the way, this is also one area where it, uh, it actually will hurt Republicans electorally. It will. I mean, I think the economy and inflation will sort of override it, but if the Democrats were going to lose in a historic landslide, even worse than the 2010 Tea Party wave, it's possible now that it won't be as big of a bloodbath because this is, this, these are just unpopular positions that they're taking. And they're letting that freak flag fly, man. Abortion ban in all 50 states is possible. State-level contraception ban is possible. That is certainly not the kind of world I want to live in. All right, next. 
So there's a little bit of a democratic civil war going on right now, and it's not the kind that we're all familiar with. The kind that we're familiar with is like the left versus the establishment Democrats. Um, this is not that. This is corporate dem on corporate dem violence. So Gavin Newsom was talking about the Roe versus Wade decision. He sort of lit into the, the leadership of the Democratic Party in Washington, D.C., Nancy Pelosi's on Face the Nation. The host is going to play the Newsom clip and get Pelosi to respond. Let's take a look. Where is the Democratic Party? Where's the party? Why are we calling this out? This is a concerted, coordinated effort. And yes, they're winning. We need to stand up. Where's the counteroffensive? Madam Speaker, why were pro-abortion rights Democrats outmaneuvered? I have, I have no idea. The fact is that we have been fighting for a woman's right to choose, and that is to choose. Uh, we have been fighting against the Republicans in the Congress constantly because the fact is they're not just anti-woman's right to choose in terms of uh, uh, terminating a pregnancy, but in terms of uh, access to contraception and family planning and the rest, both domestically and globally. Mm -hmm. This is a constant fight that we've had for generations, uh, uh, decades, I should say, right. in my case, in the Congress. And uh, uh, the, uh, we had been bipartisan early on support for women's rights to choose until the politics uh, has changed. And that's what happened but, to the court. Yeah. The, the, the science hasn't changed, they, but the court changed, and therefore they're deciding uh, that we differed. I have no idea why anybody would make that statement unless they were unaware of the fight that has been going on. Well, you have been fighting for decades on this issue, but back when Democrats held majorities in the House and the Senate in 2009, uh, when you were Speaker, President Obama was asked about codifying Roe versus Wade and said abortion is a moral and ethical issue and, quote, not the highest legislative priority. Do you think it was a mistake for him, for other presidents, not to push harder what, what when Democrats have the majority? If I just may, the focus we have right now is an urgent one in order to uh, uh, try to improve uh, and try to improve this, uh, we were calling it fake or draft decision, whatever it is. I think that this is a waste of time. The fact is, in '09, we really did not have a pro-choice uh, uh, Democratic Party. I had to fight against some of the people who did not want uh, to pass the Affordable Care Act. Understand how deeply disingenuous this is. Last week, after we got the decision of what the Supreme Court is going to do, Nancy Pelosi and Clyburn and other Democratic leaders, corporate Democrats, were campaigning for Henry, Henry, Henry Cuellar, Cuellar, who is a pro-life Democrat, supporting him over Jessica Cisneros, who is pro-choice. So the Supreme Court is going to overturn Roe versus Wade. They look at that and go, oh, okay. Then they immediately go and campaign for a Democrat who agrees with them, who will block any sort of change they try to make in a pro-choice direction. It's hard not to conclude that they're total frauds and charlatans when you look at something like that, that they're just going to use this as a, as a wedge issue to virtue signals, we're pro-choice, 
they're pro-life. If you agree more with the pro-choice position, vote for us. But we're not going to do anything about it. We're not going to do anything about it. So let's break this down. Now, Newsom says, well, where's the Democratic Party on this? And I'll come back to him in a little bit because he's Weasley and he's a slime ball too. But he says, where's the Democratic Party on this? Um, the host says, why were pro-choice Democrats outmaneuvered? Pelosi goes, well, I have no idea. Well, then isn't that the problem? If you have no idea, why are you a leader? Why don't you step aside? Why don't you let somebody younger who actually cares about this stuff take your place? Well, I have no idea how we were outmaneuvered. Well, that's the problem. But also, you do kind of know. Because you guys support pro-life Democrats. And the other thing is, um, Roe versus Wade was settled in 1973. Jimmy Carter had a veto-proof supermajority from 1977 to 1979. He didn't codify Roe versus Wade. Carter had a Democratic Senate and House from 1979 to 1981. Didn't codify Roe versus Wade. Clinton had a Democratic Senate and House in 1993 to 1995. Didn't codify Roe versus Wade. Obama had a supermajority in 2009. Didn't codify Roe versus Wade. Biden currently has a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House of Representatives. Didn't codify Roe versus Wade. So how do we get to this point? Well, all these Democratic presidents said, I'm going to codify Roe versus Wade and pass it into law so that even if something happens at the Supreme Court, we still have the law. None of them did it. None of them did it. Obama said at one point when he was campaigning, that's going to be the first thing I do when I get in office. I'm going to codify Roe versus Wade. Then he gets in office and he's like, that's not on the top of my legislative priorities list. How did this happen? Well, geez, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. I have no idea. Now, excuse me. I need to go campaign for another pro-life Democrat. Uh, Pelosi goes on to say about um, Newsom, I have no idea why anybody would make that statement unless they're unaware of the fight that's been going on. What fight? What fight? What fight are you talking about? You guys haven't lifted a finger for this. If anything, you've lifted a finger on the opposite side trying to get Kolar elected. And then she goes on to say, the focus we have right now is an urgent one to try to improve the Supreme Court decision. Well, look, I support every attempt to do that, whatever protests, whatever direct actions, as long as, of course, that, as it's peaceful. But that's not going to happen. You're not going to change the Supreme Court's decision on this by what, finger wagging? So anyway, now let's get back to Newsom, because I said he's slimy and he's weasley too. So we go, well, where's the Democratic Party on this? Now, this is the guy. The last time he was in the news that we covered him here on this show, he let the clock run out on uh, doing single-payer health care in California. When he was campaigning, there were all these videos of him virtue signaling, saying, we, what, the time is now to do universal health care. We're going to lead in California. We're going to do it in California. Then came the time to do it, and he sat there and let the clock run out, and uh, let the bill die for a second time, by the way. Now, why is that? Because he was taking so much money from health insurance companies. He was paid to kill the legislation. So this is the guy that wears the fight in the Democratic Party. On the issue of health care, where was your fight? And we know the answer. His fight was bought off. It became like, well, if you guys just give me all this money in your health insurance companies, well, then I'll just, I'll let it die. Or I'll actively help you kill it. Now, the reason why he feels emboldened to be more of like a lion on the issue of abortion is actually, it's actually a very simple answer. Um, when it comes to the issue of abortion, Democrats aren't taking big money from pro-life groups. So there is no financial conflict of interest or corruption that would allow them, that would lead them to want to not actually fight on it. 
So in the case of Gavin Newsom in particular, he's not taking any money from any pro-life groups. And so now he feels freed up to actually care about an issue. And so now he's pushing the Democratic Party in D.C. like, why aren't you guys fighting on this? Yes, this is what we have to ask for all of you guys on every single issue. Why aren't you fighting for anything? And definitely when it comes to the economy, when it comes to regulation, um, the answer is because they're bought off by corporate America. So that's why they don't fight on those things. But on social issues, generally, um, they're going to fight harder and going to care more. But what's so funny is that, particularly with Pelosi and Democratic leadership, um, even on areas where they're free to be more progressive, they still don't do it. Again, Newsom's a slightly different story. He's in California. Um, but for Pelosi and Schumer and the rest of them, all they do is virtue signal. And ultimately, even when they're free to act in an aggressive, strong way, they capitulate and they lose. And so then they just go into virtue signal mode. But it's so hollow when, particularly with Pelosi, you see her and Clyburn campaigning for a pro-life Democrat. So, but you'll notice, you will notice this with a bunch of the Democrats. There are some who are elected who actually care more about this issue and are willing to fight more for it. And again, the reason why is there's no big money corrupting them on this issue to push them in the other direction. So you'll get to see some of them actually what it looks like when they actually care about something and are willing to fight for something. And if anything, the money they take is from pro-choice groups, so they're more likely to try to fight for that. But even given that, overall as a party, they're completely ineffectual, completely pathetic, um, and they're not going to get anything done. They're not going to get anything done at all. And we're all about to witness it firsthand. But this is the first time in a long time I'm seeing the establishment wing of the Democratic Party turn on each other. The corporate Democrats turn on each other. And um, it can get ugly, and it can get vicious, and I'm here for it. Okay. Next. So Bill Maher... Uh, was talking to Democratic strategist Paul Begala on his show. And, um, man, he, uh, over the years, it's, he's gotten, he has gotten more and more conservative. I know what he says. He says, no, 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 it's not me. It's that the party changed. And so I'm the same guy with the same opinions, but the party's shifting around me. And so now, you know, I appear more conservative, even though I'm not, even though I'm saying the same thing. What you're about to see with this video is that that is definitely not true. And I say that because this is a guy who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. Bernie Sanders in 2016 and in 2020 ran on the idea of free higher education, free college, and eliminating student loan debt. Well, Mars is going to talk to corporate Democrat extraordinaire Paul Begala uh, about this issue and look at this hot take. So it just looks like a loser issue for the party that is trying to win back the working class, that we're going to subsidize. We who didn't go to college and didn't benefit from that are going to subsidize you to get your degree in gender studies <laughs> and sports marketing and all the other bullshit that they take at I, I, I think it's a loser issue for Biden. What do you think? Yeah, well, and this is revealing a big secret, so I'm telling you, we Democrats have a, a, a lab, two labs actually, secret labs, one in Berkeley and one in Brooklyn, where we come up with ideas 
to completely piss off the working class, and it's working wonderfully. <laughs>
Um, nobody can promise you that, you know, you're going to have a job and it's going to be well-paying, but let me, get, let me tell you what the American dream is. Better yourself. Go to college, get your degree, you know, do, follow this procedure, follow this process, and then at the end of it, you're, you're going to be rewarded for it. And people listened to the advice. They went and did that. And then at the end of it, they realized, like, oh, shit, now I'm 100000 or $150,000 in debt, and I got no job prospects. So what, what the fuck just happened? Again, what they didn't tell you was it was largely a scam. And so how do you address that? How do you deal with that? You do it the way other European countries have done it, which is say, why not treat college exactly like we treat high school? Have it paid for by tax dollars, and then people don't start out life way behind eight ball without having any clue what to do. And again, I love the idea of free trade school as well. You could, go to, you could have free college, you could have free trade school. You know, that's, those, those are your options. Because it used to be the case back in the day, all you need was like a high school diploma and you can get a decent job. Now, it's like you, you need college. And then if you, you know, even if you have college, even that sometimes isn't enough. So it's just about trying to get people in equal opportunity again. We're talking about we're in the first generations now. They're going to do worse than their parents. The way the system has been set up is absolutely abysmal. It's abysmal, and people are struggling. And I think the thing that frustrates me the most is that Paul Begala and Bill Maher frame their position as like the anti-elitist position, like we're just looking out for the working class, when they're actually taking the elitist position. The, the, the pro-working class position is obvious on this. Have free college, eliminate student loan debt, give people a chance, give people the option of college or trade school, and by the way, that would be rewarded by the voters. I just told you, 64% of the country agrees with the idea of eliminating student loan debt and uh, agrees with the idea of free college. This is the working class position. There's this bullshit argument now that's been floating around of like, this is somehow like if you eliminate student loan debt, that's somehow like a giveaway to the rich or something. No, the people who really come from money, their parents pay for their college. Their parents pay. Now, are there some people who are like middle class and maybe even some upper middle class who take out student loans and, and go to college and so maybe some of them would be getting help? Of course, middle class people, of course they should get the help. And poor people, of course, they should get the help. Have, again, if you think about this when it comes to principles, you could say, as a matter of principle, I don't think student loan debt should be a thing. That's not something you should have to go into debt to do, to get an education. So even if it does help some people who are like upper middle class or whatever, fine, fine. I guarantee you the bulk of the help is going to the middle class and the poor, without a doubt. And statistics bore that out. Again, Crystal showed that chart on her um, great monologue on this. So they're taking the elitist position as they pretend they're being populist. No, no. You are definitely elitist. And we all, these are two like multimillionaires sitting there being condescending to the idea of eliminating student loan debt. They have no idea what it's like for somebody who's struggling and it can't pay the bills. And of course, student loan debt is special in that you can't file for bankruptcy on it. It's one of the few forms of debt you can't file for bankruptcy on. I just, it's, it's astonishing to me. Again, this is a guy who supported Bernie Sanders in 2016. 
Bernie was always for free college and eliminating student loan debt. And now he's mocking the idea and saying, this is going to hurt us with working class voters. What does that even mean? If 64% of the country is in favor of it, and these are working class voters, what are you saying? He, he's totally chugged the Kool-Aid and the propaganda that like any sort of program that actually helps the working class is elitist and bad. No, it, not at all. Anything that helps the working class is by definition pro-working class. And um, he's too caught up in that standard establishment Democrat world to realize that he's now just a rank propagandist for these shitty ideas. I guess that's what happens when you go from a Bernie voter in 2016 to a Klobuchar voter in 2020. You sort of lose your touch with reality. Okay. All right, so this video is something. I mean, look, we're, we are in 2022, and Joe Biden is mentally stuck in, like, 1980. And even that might be kind, because it might be, like, 1972 he's mentally stuck in. Um, He's going to talk here about, you know, oh, it's terrible what's been happening in this country with the um, severe partisanship, and people can't even get together and talk and be kind. And he brings this up. Now, is there some issue there? Sure, you could argue that. I think the media stokes the flames of the culture war, and That makes people hate their neighbors. And so there is a grain of truth there. But take note of what Joe Biden uses as his example of when we had more civility and decorum and when men were more honorable. Watch this. You know, things have kind of changed since the days when I first got there. He's been there a couple terms. I was there. I got elected when I was 29 years old in the United States Senate from a very modest background, and I was there for 36 years before becoming vice president. We always used to fight like hell. And uh, even back in the old days when we had real segregationists like Eastland and Thurman and all those guys, but we ended up eight months together. Things have changed. we got to bring it back. And Rob, I'm sorry you're leaving because you're one of the good guys. I don't mean, I mean because the way you treat other senators, the way you treat everybody, I appreciate it. His point is, man, it was so much better when I first got here when we would put our differences aside and just be kind to each other and eat with each other, have a meal, laugh it up, you know, personally intermingle in a way that highlighted our more human side. And his example of that was, I used to eat with the segregationists, and it was great. He doesn't realize it, but he's making the opposite point of the one he thinks he's making. So what's the real takeaway of that? The real takeaway is, look, there are some things where any reasonable person will draw some moral red lines and say, hey, there's room for disagreement here, but if you go that extreme, I'm out. I can't do it. Because by, okay, no exaggeration here, by his logic, you could just take out segregationists with like neo-Nazis or like, you know, I used to eat dinner. I used to eat uh, lunch with Goebbels and he was a sweet guy. Love dogs, Goebbels. Understand something, guys. I'm actually, I'm more on the side of the spectrum in this debate of I, uh, open discourse, debate, 
you know, agree to agree where we agree and agree to disagree where we disagree. We could talk about where we disagree and be upfront and honest. We could talk about where we agree and be upfront and honest. And so I, I like the idea, the general sentiment of what he's getting at I like, but he's missing it completely. Because the real argument to make at the end of that is, and that's why there are certain things that are beyond that which is reasonable, and you lose me. And no, I'm not going to yuck it up with segregationists. Oh, I'll, I'll talk to one and maybe debate them to try to change their mind and maybe do it over time. But if they, if after time they don't reform on that, it's like, I, well, what do you want me to do? I'm not going to just hang out with you and act like you're my buddy. Because that's one of those things that it's, it's not a reasonable disagreement. It is deeply unreasonable because your position is black people are inferior, full stop. Openly, treat them as second-class citizens. That's their argument. And this is the problem with that D.C. brain rot, is that everything just becomes par for the course when you're there. So, you know, another great example, Biden supported the Iraq War. Anybody who voted for the Iraq War voted for an illegal and offensive war against a country that didn't attack us. They ordered torture to cover it up. And hundreds of thousands of innocent civilians died, and we illegally occupied a country. We're still in Iraq, by the way. We broke a region of the world and all, that had nothing to do with 9-11. That's one of those things where it's like, we can't really, be, we can't really yuck it up and just have a meal and talk about the kids and soccer practice if that's your take. We just can't. It's just too much. It's too far. It's like, we should be kind and good to everybody, including war criminals. We will be best friends with war criminals. Now, everybody else has a different line there, right? It's like where they draw the line, where they say, hey, that's too much. I can't do it. But for these guys, it's like as long as you're in D.C., you, you're part of the club, and so it's okay. You like torture? You like illegal wars? You like segregation? You like tanking the global economy? You're deeply, deeply corrupt and totally ignore the will of your constituents and only uh, legislate on behalf of giant corporations and billionaire oligarchs? Come have a seat. Hey, let's chat it up. You want a quesadilla? So, no, he actually, he doesn't realize it, but he's making the opposite point of the one he should be making. You know, I mean, I, I have no problem associating with people if I think they're honest and authentic and they could still disagree with me on 70, 80, 90% of shit, right? I have no problem associating with people if that's the framework. But as soon as you get to, like, international war criminal, torturer, segregationist, that's where I'm like, I, I can't do it. I can't backslap with Strom Thurmond and act like, you're just a nice guy who disagrees, bro. You're just a nice guy who disagrees, bro. And think about how much it says that in Washington, D.C., Bernie is way more of a pariah than guys like Strom Thurmond were. Think about what that says about Washington, D.C. Says a lot, doesn't it? Now, to be fair to Biden, he actually is consistent on this because he likes Bernie, personally, at least. But 
it says a lot, doesn't it, that when a democratic socialist who has real moral values um, is castigated and more of an outsider and an outcast than literal segregationist, that is a broken town, is what it is. So Biden's saying we need to get back to that. In other words, all, like Mitch McConnell and all these Republicans who obstruct me 100% of the time and spit in my eye and refuse to make a deal on anything, even when I water it down to basically mirror their ideology, why can't we be friends again and be nice again and sit down and eat a meal together again? You guys can still screw, screw over me and my, my agenda in the entire country if you want, and, but let me, let's just be friendly. It seems like that's the time that he yearns for. I want to get railroaded by people who disagree with me on everything and still be kind to them and have them be kind to me and let's have a drink. Why not? It's just, he's kind of a sad character, isn't he? Biden. At the end of the day, he just strikes me as a very sad character. He's one of those, like, he's just a product of his environment type person, persons, people. I don't know why that sentence was so hard to construct and I still fucked it up. He really does strike me as just a product of his environment where, you know, look, he was in the belly of the beast the entire time. And when you're in the belly of the beast, he fell for the propaganda on the Patriot Act. He fell for the propaganda on NAFTA. He fell for the propaganda on the Iraq war. He was one of the chief authors of the crime bill. Like, so this is a guy who's just so impressionable. And, you know, when you surround yourself with the likes of Strom Thurmond and segregationists, well, guess what? Joe Biden took the wrong position on federal busing. Remember that? That was an issue during the primaries. Kamala was able to get her zinger in over that because it was true. There were some segregationist policies that he supported. So that's what happens when you're a product of that environment. So if the fuel that runs Washington is corruption, Joe Biden thinks, well, that's just par for the course. That's just how it is. And there is no, you know, macro picture analysis where he could say, this is wrong. And maybe we should really change the way this is done. No. He's very comfortable in that environment. He's very comfortable eating with segregationists and acting like, main point, he thinks, this one is just a gentleman's disagreement. No. Look, you can have, there are a million gentlemen's disagreements out there, right? What should the tax rate be? What's your take on, um, you know, regulation of the marketplace? Um, Even with uh, social policy, how socially liberal are you? How socially conservative are you? To what extent do we just sort of maintain the status quo and embrace tradition? To what extent do we move towards a different future? There's so many gentlemen's disagreements out there. Joe Biden manages to pick the few things that are not gentlemen's disagreements and present them like they're gentlemen's disagreements. Yeah, segregation. Debatable. What side of that are you on? No, Joe, that's the problem. That's the problem. He's got a high threshold for complete immorality and a lack of ethics. And he just views that as like, that's just Bob. It's fine. Like, that's just who he is. Let's make a deal with him and meet him halfway. No, 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 no. So anyway, look, I'm all for civility. I'm all for open discourse. I'm all for debate. I'm all for friends who you disagree with. Um, That's all totally fine. But once you get to torture, war crimes, and segregation, I think that does reflect on you if you're so comfy in that environment and you're fine with it and you're cool with it and you like it and you want to bring that back. That's, um, that's not somebody who's really thought this stuff through and is principled and clear headed. That's somebody who's a product of their environment and kind of a weak thinker. Okay. 
All right, let me do one more, then we'll take a break. This story um, is really something special. Now, I will say, maybe I'm a softie, maybe I'm too kind-hearted, but Megan McCain's book flopped so hard, I almost feel bad for her. Almost. I'm stressing the word almost because I don't feel bad for her. But uh, let me go ahead and show you the tweet. This is from somebody who, by the way, was at NBC. He says, Megan McCain's new book, Bad Republican, a memoir, flops big time. Only 244 copies have sold since it was released on April 26th. Let that sink in. 244 copies. 244 copies. It's almost been two weeks. Guys, let me explain to you the way this works. The way this works is when you first drop the book, that's when you get most of your sales. It's like with anything. If you uh, watch a, a YouTube video from this channel or whatever other favorite channels you might have, you got to look in the first like first 48-hour period is where you're going to get like 90% of your views. First 48 hours, especially in news and politics. We're almost uniquely like that in this realm. But that's when you're going to get most of your views. So if I drop a video, it gets 40,000 views in the first uh, 48 hours. You know, you could wait another 48, or you could wait another week and go back, and maybe it ticks up to 45. But mo- everything gets it. You hit it up front. That's what happens. Um, book sales are exactly like that as well. You, you build up the hype. You do the interviews. You get the word out there. You do everything you can, and then when it drops, boom! That's when it's supposed to. You get your most sales. 244 copies in a two-week period. That is beyond embarrassing. It's beyond embarrassing. Now, this is somebody who was shoved down the throats of the American public simply because her dad is John McCain. And that's what it is. And by the way, I'm thinking of uh, t- uh, Tim Dillon's um, impression of Meghan McCain now, and it is hilarious. You, got, you definitely have to go check that out. Type in Tim Dillon, Meghan McCain <laughs> um, into YouTube. So... Everybody knows what she is, right? At her core, she's an entitled, spoiled little brat who, through her father's name and nepotism, was able to get onto a bunch of forums where she had no business being. Um, On The View, she was the host that people love to hate, but apparently behind the scenes she's impossible to work with. Steve Schmidt, who's a Republican operative, who now he's part of the Lincoln Project, so he's like a scammer and a fraud in in his own respect. But he tells stories about how she's worse than anybody could imagine. She would, she would be a brat. She would argue with people. She would yell at people. She was expected to be served. Um, he had to throw her off of a, a plane uh, at least once during, Megan Mc, during um, John McCain's campaign for president. Uh, nobody likes her. All that stuff. And so she was gifted this position, gifted this position on TV and in media because of who her dad is. My father, my father is John McCain, my father. And um, these are the results, man. Look, it goes to show you a number of things. I mean, nepotism is a huge problem. But also, when you're an executive at, you know, one of these uh, networks, they don't, they don't really know what they're doing. They're just, like, taking guesses. Like, okay, maybe we should give this person a show. And we think they'll do well. 
well, how would you know? What experience do you have in knowing what will, what will work and won't work? If there's a rigid hierarchy at the networks, and it is the opposite of a free market and a meritocracy. It's an anti-meritocracy for favoritism reasons, for political reasons. Who are we going to prominently feature? You know, Chris Cuomo with his show on CNN, which, by the way, did better than a lot of other CNN shows. But that's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. Why was he in that position? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because the Cuomo family is a political dynasty where Mario Cuomo was the governor of New York and uh, Andrew Cuomo was the governor of New York. Maybe that has something to do with it. So this isn't like this isn't it's not organic. It's not like here are the voices that are more popular and the cream rises to the top. It's the opposite. The cream ain't nowhere to be found in mainstream media with all the different levels of filtration. You know, they keep out any sort of dissenting charismatic voices and they prop up the banal status quo defenders. And therein lies Meghan McCain and why she was in the position that she was in. But it's astroturfed. Nobody actually likes these people. Nobody does. Think about to make it in new media and independent media, you need to develop an actual natural organic following and then people end up liking you and there's like a parasocial relationship there and they're interested in what you have to say about various different topics. And it works like this in all of new media and independent media. It's never like that on TV. It's background noise on TV. If you turn on CNN or something, it's on at airports and bars and barbershops. Nobody's watching it. Nobody cares what Wolf Blitzer has to say about A, B, or C. So this is what happens. It's astroturfed. They're propped up unfairly. And then the bubble bursts when you try to do something that actually needs to appeal on its own merits. It flops miserably. So I almost feel bad for her that her bubble of delusion was popped. Now she comes out there and says, no, but on Audible, the app, it was one of the best selling and it was out before on Audible. And the only reason we're even selling it, like the hard copy of the book is for people who really like it for collector's reasons or what. Highly doubt that by any measurable metrics, the book did well. Highly, highly, highly doubt that. Because, and let me end on this note, because this is actually really interesting, and a lot of people don't know this. The way that it works, particularly in conservative politics, what they do when they have, like let's say back in the day when Bill O'Reilly released a book, or Mark Levin releases a book, or Michael Savage, who is another big right-wing author and, and radio show host, when one of those guys releases a book, they have a million tricks that they use to get it on bestsellers list. So one of the things that happens is you have all these, um, these right-wing think tanks. So like the Heritage Foundation, uh, for example, or you know, what, I'm blanking on the names of the other ones now. Cato Institute, that's more like libertarian leaning. Um, there's ones that are dedicated for foreign policy. There's ones that are dedicated for more domestic policy and tax cuts for the rich and stuff like that. The conservative think tanks will buy in bulk these books from right-wing commentators and right-wing authors. They buy them in bulk, and then they turn around and hand them out at whatever sort of conventions they might have. And if this happened with Ann Coulter, this is a very common practice in the business. They find a way to sell enough books to then get the book on the bestseller list and then when it gets on the bestseller list, they'll get a few more sales off of the fact that it's on the bestseller list and somebody might see it and say, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll pick that up or whatever, and then they do it. But it's astroturfed. It's really top-down stuff. It's not bottom-up stuff. It's not organic following. You put it out there, boom, it explodes through natural popularity. It is jerry-rigged 
if you have, and this happened with Rush Limbaugh too, all these people, you have these big conservative uh, you know, institutes and think tanks, buy it in bulk, hand them out for free at conventions, and boom, you get, you know, the numbers are juiced massively. And what happens here with Meghan McCain is she was actually too honest. Maybe she didn't know the tricks of the trade. She didn't know the way it worked. And so she actually tried to put it out there and let it succeed or fail on its own merits. And she didn't understand the way it works. And now she's paying the consequences for that. Because 244 copies in nearly two weeks. Oh, man, that's rough. That is really, really rough. So almost feel bad for her, but I can't feel bad for her because she's the failed daughter of a war criminal who was gifted everything on a silver platter uh, but still has a perpetual victim complex. Completely unbearable. All right, guys, let me take a break. When we come back, we got Jake Tapper debating the Mississippi governor and Elizabeth Warren debating student loan debt elimination on The View. Stay right there, y'all.
Alright, we are back, bitches. Welcome back to the show. Welcome back, Cotter. Alright, let's keep it going. Still got plenty of stuff to get to. So Elizabeth Warren um, went on The View, and there's a conservative host who pressed her on the issue of uh, student loan debt forgiveness. The, the argument that the host uses is one that I feel like is very common uh, from the crowd that opposes student loan debt forgiveness. So let's see how she reacts, and then I'll react as well. I mean, you've been fiercely advocating for the president to cancel student loan debt. But really, only 13% of Americans even have federal student loan debt. So is this really the best way to reach most voters? And also, what do you say to someone like me who worked two jobs for a decade to pay off all their student loans just finished? Where do I sign up for reimbursement? So let's start out with who has student loans today. Um, About 40% of the folks with student loans don't have a college diploma. They're folks who tried. They're folks who tried and life happened. Pregnancies, uh, uh, they were already working two jobs and lost one of them. Uh, Mom got sick, family had to move somewhere else. And now they earn what a high school grad earns and it's hard to pay off college level debt. And it is crushing their bones. Keep in mind that of those who have student loan debt, more than half I'm going to be so pissed. That is an argument for never doing anything good because the people before didn't get to experience the good things. I mean, I made this point in response to that right-wing host. Imagine in, I think, uh, indentured servitude went away in 1917. Or 1916, I think it was. Imagine saying in 1917... I am so pissed. I just finished my indentured servitude, and now the kids today don't have to deal with it. The people today don't have to deal with indentured servitude. Not fair. They should have to go through it like I did. Or you can make that argument about a cure for cancer. I'm going to be so... I just had a family member pass away because of cancer, and now they want to come up with a cure? Well, where do I get my family member back? 
Where do I go for that? It doesn't work for that now, does it? Not fair. So it's an argument for having a perpetually fucked up system because not everybody got the experience, uh, you know, when it got better. You can literally make that argument for slavery. You know, I spent my whole life, 60 years as a slave, and now they just get rid of it, and so my kids don't have to experience that? Just stupid. And it's, there's also an admission embedded in, that, embedded in that point of like, yeah, we know the current system is fucked up. Okay, so then let's agree to fix it. She even says at the beginning, only 13% of Americans have student loan debt. Only 13%? That's a gigantic number. We have over 300 million people in the country. That's a lot of people. Now, I will say this, though, because you are, it is going to be a common point, even though I think it's a terribly selfish point when people are, what about me? Um, my reaction to that would be, well, I'm in favor of UBI, Social Security for All, so I give you a check every month. But then usually what happens is if you bring something like that up, they're like, I don't support that either. Okay, well, then stop complaining. Then stop complaining. If you don't have any student loans to forgive at the moment and you don't want a UBI check, which is straight cash for you, well, then what are you doing? You're just, it's arguing for no change and the status quo in perpetuity and masking it in a sort of pseudo-intellectualism when really it's just standard reactionary politics. So, look, don't be this person, guys. Don't be this person. Now, in the case of Elizabeth Warren, this is a point I've made over and over. If, you know, if various senators and various congresspeople truly do support student loan debt elimination, if you truly supported it, and you were willing to fight for it, none of them are willing to fight. None of them even know how to fight. But what you would do is go to Biden and say, listen, I want to be on your side. I want to help you out, but you got to help me out. And, you know, Democrats are going to get draxed in the midterms. Roe versus Wade may have changed that a touch because that's going to, people are going to, more would, will vote now as a result of that, but I don't know how big of a difference it'll make overall. But you need to break out that executive order pen and eliminate student loan debt. And if you don't do that, I'm just not going to let anything you want to pass, pass. If you had a group of a dozen Democrats in the House and like five Democrats in the Senate, and you all met with Biden and said, you don't have a choice. You are going to eliminate student loan debt. And then if and when you do that, then we're open to conversations about what other legislation is going to get passed. But until then, we'll block everything. And we'll tell people the reason we're blocking this is because he needs to eliminate student loan debt. He has the ability to do it through executive order. So force his hand to do it through executive order. And uh, they're not going to do that. Of course they're not going to do that. They're all team players. And uh, what's going to happen with Biden is either he'll do nothing on it or he'll do what was floated in the media, which is not eliminating it, not even $50,000 of reduction. He'll do a $10,000 reduction, and he'll means test it so it only goes to the poor and, and lower middle class. So it'll still screw over middle class people. It'll still leave plenty of people with student loan debt. Uh, it'll just be a tiny reduction. That's likely what's going to happen. But even that, for the loud, vocal minority of Americans who are against it, is going to be a bridge too far. Don't listen to the naysayers. They're, like, the elitists are overrepresented in media because 64% of Americans want to eliminate student loan debt. 64%. So this definitely is something that would help in the polls. It would help with the working class. And it's substantively and morally the right thing to do, so he should do it. Okay, next. So Jake Tapper 
spoke to uh, the governor of Mississippi about Roe versus Wade being overturned and abortion policy in the state of Mississippi. Let's, it's a pretty, you know, they're going at it a little bit here in this back and forth, but uh, we're going to break it down when we come back. Also take note of how the governor of Mississippi looks exactly like fat Ryan Grimm. So the snapback law in two, that was passed in 2007 has no uh, exception for incest. So assuming that the Supreme Court uh, overturns Roe v. Wade, uh, the state of Mississippi will force girls and women who are the victims of incest to carry those childs to term. Can you explain why that is going to be your law? Well, that's going to be the law because in 2007, the Mississippi legislature passed it. I will tell you, Jake, um, and this sort of speaks to how far the, the Democrats in Washington have come on this issue. But in 2007, when the trigger law was put in place, uh, we had a Democrat Speaker of the House, and we had a Democrat Chairman of the Public Health Committee in the Mississippi House yeah. of Representatives. But why, uh, why are you going to piece of legislation? Why is it acceptable in your and state so, to force girls who are victims of incest to carry those child children to term? Well, as you know, Jake, um, over 92% of all abortions in America are elective procedures. Um, when you look at the number of, of those that actually are involved, incest is less than 1%. And if we need to have that conversation in the future about potential uh, exceptions in the trigger law, we can certainly do that. But the reality is that, again, that affects less than 1% of all abortions in America well, on an annual basis. Okay, but that is going to be the law of Mississippi. Let me ask you, what about a fetus that has serious or fatal abnormalities that will not allow that fetus to live outside the womb? Is the state of Mississippi going to force those girls and women who have this tragedy inside them to carry the child to term? Are you going to force them to do that? Well, Jake, I'll tell you, I think that, that these questions uh, illustrate exactly what we've been talking about, and that is you're dealing in, in uh, examples that are rare and are a very small percentage of the overall abortions. And the reason for that is because when you talk to Americans, regardless of what the, what the polling says with respect to overturning Roe v. Wade, the vast majority of Americans recognize that the abortion laws in America right now, that is what are extreme. America's abortion laws are uh, extreme relative to the rest of the Western world. Yeah. You know that even if the court did not overturn Roe, Jake, even if the court did not overturn Roe, even if they just decided to uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban, that 39 out of 42 countries in Europe would still have more restrictive abortion laws. Yeah. The vast majority of Americans support restrictions that are reasonable on abortions, and the overturning of Roe is simply going to return those decision-making processes to the state, back to the individual right. legislatures and, all and, I'm, and I'm asking you about this, the law in your state and the exceptions that the law does not offer to Mississippi women and girls who are victims of incest, who have uh, uh, fetuses that have fatal or very serious abnormalities. Uh, which is not really all that rare, to be honest. I mean, I know plenty of women that that has happened to, and they had to, take, you know, they wanted to have a healthy child, but they weren't able to, uh, and your law would force them to carry it, the child to term. I want to ask you a philosophical question here, because I know you have said you believe that life begins at conception. Just to be clear, 
does that mean the moment of fertilization or the moment of implantation? I believe that life begins at conception. And as I've said repeatedly, and I know where this question is ultimately going with respect to the birth control and other measures, I want to be clear. My view is that the next phase of the pro-life movement is focusing on helping those moms that maybe have an, an unexpected and unwanted pregnancy. The next phase of the pro-life movement is, is making sure that those babies, once born, um, have a productive life. No, it's not. That is not the next phase of the pro-life movement. This is something, there was an article in the Washington Post from Jeff Stein talking about this, where there are some Republicans who are pro-life, and then now, since they're winning on their biggest thing, they're pivoting the conversation like, yeah, but so, okay, if, if we're going to force the women to have the babies, then we should have more child care programs and maybe extend the child tax credit and make sure we have some pro-family policies in place like paid family leave and paid maternity leave and things of that nature. That is all virtue signaling. There will not be enough Republicans to get something like that passed, I guarantee you. There will be no movement among Republicans toward pay family leave. There's like a handful of them that support it right now. There will be no support for the extended child tax credit. This idea, I mean, George Carlin, you know, said it best. I'm going to paraphrase here, but he said something along the lines of um, they're pro-life for a fetus, but as soon as it's born, they're like, screw you. Something along those lines. And it's true. You know, no no pro-family policies, no pro-economic support for babies or young kids. They're in favor of the, you know, dog-eat-dog world of vicious, rapacious, for-profit um, capitalism. You know, they're in favor of, hey, if it fails, it fails. And there is a contradiction there, right? Like, I'm pro-life, but then and pro-family, but then when it comes to help that life of that baby and a family, no, I'm not in favor of that at all. Also, I'm pro-life, but I'm pro-death penalty. What? I don't understand that. I'm pro-life, but I'm pro-every war. Well, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand that. And there's nothing to understand. It's rank hypocrisy and inconsistency. Um, so now let's talk about uh, the laws that they're discussing here. So Mississippi is one of either 13 or 16 states, I say 13 or 16 because two articles made two separate claims that I've read, that have these um, trigger laws or these snapback laws, which basically means that as soon as the Supreme Court overturns Roe versus Wade, from second number one, abortion is illegal in all of those states, fully illegal. Um, so they have one of those, and what Jake Tapper is discussing is they may have exceptions for rape and if the life of the mother is in danger so you can get an abortion in those very rare instances but uh they don't have incest as one of the exceptions and they don't have a fetus with a serious abnormality or potentially a fatal abnormality they don't allow an exception for that either and so he's saying well why why don't you have exceptions for that like shouldn't that be exceptions and his response is like well these things are really rare anyway and, of course, Tapper's kind of saying, well, who cares if it's irrelevant? The law is supposed to cover, you know, not just the common circumstances, but also the fringe circumstances. So let's address that. And he doesn't really dodge. I mean, excuse me, he doesn't really answer. He dodges. And, by the way, he was asked in a different interview about, hey, what about, like, banning contraception and stuff like that? And he dodges that, too. So, in other words, the door's open for that as well. There's an Arizona uh, candidate 
Republican who wants to ban contraception. Marsha Blackburn proposed a bill that only allows contraception to be used by married people. So that, that is what's coming next. The next phase of the pro-life movement is not like, well, how do we help these families and these babies? The next phase of the pro-life movement is, let's get a total national abortion ban. So not just overturning Roe v. Wade, but even force the blue states to not have abortion. And let's move on to the morning after pill, which is one of the questions he was asking there is like, well, when does life really begin? So would you want to ban the morning after pill? Would you want to ban other forms of contraception, like an IUD or like condoms or whatever? That's where it's going. That's where it's going. Um, and then the final point I want to make here, which I think is actually the most important point, is this totally bogus narrative where um, he says the abortion laws in America are extreme with Roe versus Wade. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Roe versus Wade is incredibly moderate in terms of its approach to abortion. They set up the trimester standard. In the first trimester standard, you, you have a right to an abortion. In the second trimester, the states are allowed to do health regulations. In the third trimester, if states so choose, they can ban abortion for late-term abortion. That's moderate. That's a moderate position. Roe versus Wade does not say, hey, you can get an abortion all the way up in, until including uh, late-term abortion, even if it's a day before the baby's going to be born. That is not what Roe says at all. So when he argues, well, that's what's extreme, Roe versus Wade, no, it was very centrist. It was very moderate. It was a, a nuanced approach to dealing with the issue of abortion. And by the way, I totally agree with it. Now, later on, they, they moved it to uh, what's called the viability standard. So they used to do it by trimesters, but then they moved it to the viability standards. You can do the regulations, you know, post-viability. Before then, you couldn't. Um, you can't. But now that's all out the window, and it's just leave it up to the states and let them decide. And anywhere from 20 to 24 states are going to decide to fully ban it. And um, that's going to be a nightmare. That's going to be a nightmare. And there's going to be, uh, experts say there's probably going to be about a 14% reduction in abortion. Um, but there's also going to be abortions in those places that get pushed underground and bring back the coat hangers and make the life of the mother more in danger. And um, it's not good. It's certainly not good. So, but don't buy this notion that like the real extreme position on abortion is Roe versus Wade. No, the extreme position is the position that a lot of these people have, which is actually want to ban it in all cases, maybe with the exception of rape and life of the mother, but they want to ban it in almost all cases. That's the extreme position. That's a very extreme position. And um, it is absolutely, in most circumstances, informed by a fundamentalist religious view, even though the Bible doesn't say that abortion is bad and wrong. In fact, there is abortion in the Bible. They even prescribe abortion in the Bible if your wife cheats on you. But it, is, it stems from that. They all think they're carrying out God's will. And um, so in some ways, it's sort of like a theocratic approach to dealing with this. This is where we're heading, and it ain't pretty. Okay. Next. All right, you guys are going to like this one. Classic Donald Trump. Classic Donald Trump. Here we go. So Mark Esper is the former defense secretary under Donald Trump, and he is releasing a book, and apparently there, it is just full of absolute gems about Trump's uh, insanity behind the scenes. So this is some reporting in The Hill. Let me show you. 
Former President Trump proposed launching missiles into Mexico to destroy drug labs run by cartels, according to an upcoming memoir from Mark Esper, his former Secretary of Defense. The New York Times first reported the news gaining an advanced copy of Esper's memoir, A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times, which is slated for a release on Tuesday. According to Esper, Trump said the idea of bombing the drug labs at least twice, excuse me, Trump raised the idea of bombing the drug labs at least twice in the summer of 2020. Trump told Esper the U.S. should shoot missiles into Mexico to destroy the labs. Quote, they don't have control of their own country, Trump told Esper, according to the Times review of the memoir. When Esper objected, Trump responded, quote, no one would know it was us, and we could just shoot some Patriot missiles and take out the labs quietly. (laughs) This guy, man. Uh, I'll come back to that line in a second because there's a lot there that makes you know this is a real story. Esper at first assumed it was a joke, but thought otherwise as he looked at the president, according to the Times. Esper served as Secretary of Defense from 2019 to, excuse me, from 2019 to November 2020, when Trump fired him following disputes over police brutality and racial justice protests in the summer of that year. So by the way, what they're referring to there is Trump wanted to use the Insurrection Act. The Insurrection Act. So he wanted to deploy the U.S. military in the streets of the U.S. to quell a protest. He wanted to Basically, it's like martial law, police state, authoritarianism type stuff, anti-First Amendment, anti-free expression, free speech, freedom of protest. Um, and even his generals and his close advisors were like, no, I, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And through the line. Because, I mean, look, there are instances where Trump fought with, you know, people in, uh, in his cabinet and people in the Pentagon where Trump was right, like getting out of Afghanistan, and they blocked that. Uh, so in that instance, I sided with Trump. This was an instance where, of course, you side with them because they're saying, yeah, you don't do the Insurrection Act over this. You don't do that. You know, we have police. We have law enforcement. They can handle the, uh, you know, whatever sort of riots might come about. And also, you don't crack down an entire protest because 5% of them or whatever are acting wrongly and doing illegal things, et cetera. You go after the people who did the wrong things. You don't go after the entire protest. Uh, Esper disagreed with him on that, to his credit. Now, Esper disagreed with Trump on that, so he was the one who was saying, no insurrection act. Um, Here's how I know the story is real. Because Trump said, when Esper was like, no, we're not doing that, Trump said, quote, no one would know it was us, and we could just shoot some Patriot missiles and take out the labs, quietly. The no one would know it was us thing is exactly what he said about taking U.S. planes, putting a Chinese flag on it, and bombing the Russian military when they were lined up trying to get inside of Kiev. Trump said the same thing publicly. He's like, what I would do is I would make it look like Chinese. The Chinese are bombing Russia. That's what I would do. And they wouldn't, nobody would know it was us, and we do it quietly. The quietly thing also sounds exactly like him. You do it fast. You do it quietly. You move in and out. You say, I don't even know what you're talking about. I didn't do that. I mean, it is a phenomenally dumb recommendation. It is incredibly stupid. Also, needless to say, it is massively illegal. You can't violate the territorial sovereignty of a a country and act like that's totally okay. I, I mean, again, think about the precedent of that. And this is also, I think, back to the Iraq war. That was illegal under international law. We did it anyway. Well, now you laid the precedent and anybody can invade anybody and say, it's debatable. I think it's, it's legal for me to do it, so I'm going to do it. This is the same shit. And Mexico is an ally of ours. Of course, they don't want the U.S. to do it. And, but he's like, look, do it anyway. 
do it anyway. And also this idea of like, you know, you know, you know how we win the drug war is we need to treat it like a war war. Well, to some extent, not this extreme, but to some extent we have been doing that for decades. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work because there's a market, there's a natural demand for it, and so the supply is, is going to meet it. And, of course, they have to, you know, do it in all sorts of sneaky ways and underground ways, but that's not the way that you fix the situation. The way that you would fix that, of course, is to legalize tax and regulate drugs, set up, a, you know, a legal infrastructure, and undercut the drug cartels with real uh, official businesses that do everything above board. You put them out of business. That's how you do it. But, no, you wanted to double down on the drug war approach. Of course, you wanted to militarize the border beyond belief. And he was literally talking about launching missiles into Mexico to go after drug labs. By the way, this notion of like, well, we know how, where everything is and how it works. And it just, we're not doing anything. We just know that. That's totally not true. That's totally not true. Like, oh, yeah, we know how everything functions, but we just don't stop it. No, that's not accurate at all. But this, I mean, this is this kind of stuff that this guy floated seriously if he keep it real if he was the final voice on all of the policies it would his presidency even though it was terrible would have been like four times worse than it was because even though a lot of the people around him are ideologues and they're right wingers and i don't agree with their politics at all they at least had some semblance of like normiedom to them where they would think like what what you want to bomb mexico what are you talking about? You want to bomb Mexico and pretend it's not us, and you want to do it, quote, quietly? What are you even saying, dog? Now, by the way, there are some instances where his insane ideas, apparently, they actually carry out. The best example of that is when we killed a top Iranian commander. Remember that? We took a drone and killed a top Iranian commander who, by the way, was in the battlefield going after ISIS. And then he came out and bragged about it. And, you know, look, that sparked a a crisis. And then there were retaliatory attacks in the region against us. And it was, that could have spiraled out of control, man. We, We got lucky it didn't get as bad as it could have gotten. But that was one of those instances where he brought it up and he was surrounded by the neocons and the bloodthirsty psychopaths who were dumb enough to be like, that's a great idea. Esper, I don't know if Esper was there during that. He probably was, but he may have signed off on it. So... He's just, he's not bright, and he's very impulsive. And if every whim he had was entertained, oh, my God. Lord only knows what else would have happened, man. But think about floating the idea of bombing Mexico. When Mexico doesn't even want it. Mexico wasn't calling for it. The U.S. president has far too much power. This was a rare instance where he was reined in, just like he was with the Insurrection Act. Um, but commander-in-chief, man, commander-in-chief controls our military, and then we have all these bullshit, you know, Weasley ways where they can wage war without actually declaring it first, and technically it's constitutional up to a certain point, like the War Powers Act or whatever that they invoke. We're lucky he didn't do more, and he didn't do even worse stuff, because with ideas like this, (laughs) to, to say it's, Unstable is a massive understatement.
All right, next. So here's something that is really, really interesting because we pretty much never see stuff like this happen, but let's take a look. This is in Reuters. New French left-wing PAC's leader targets 50% of parliamentary seats. So let me explain what's going on here. Um, Four French left-wing parties united to form a coalition. Now, their system is different than ours. There is a parliamentary system, so you can do these sorts of, you know, coalitions to get together so you can wield power together. Um, This is really interesting how this came about. Let me read you some of this here. This is in Reuters. The de facto leader of a rare pact between France's left-wing party said on Friday he was targeting a 50% share of seats in June's parliamentary elections as he seeks to derail recently re-elected President Emmanuel Macron's reform program. Hard-left leader Jean-Luc Mélenchon also said in an interview with France 2 Television that if the leftist front won a majority in the election, there would be leftist government of which he wanted to be prime minister. So, what this guy did, Jean-Luc Mélenchon is like the Bernie of um, France. He's, you know, the left leader. He barely missed out uh, after the first, you know, he lost in the first round, but he barely lost. He almost... um, surpassed Marine Le Pen in votes. He came up just shy. Now, after he lost, he did actually endorse Macron. And he's like, never Marine Le Pen. She's too extreme. We don't agree with her. Back Macron. But obviously, he had an ace up his sleeve here because he was plotting all along. Let's get Macron in there, and then let's, do, let's unite the left. You know, it was like the Communist Party and the Socialist Party and then two other parties. And let's create a deal, unite the left, and then we are going to wield power and try to wrestle back control. So, look, he was plotting. He was plotting, and this might actually work. Earlier, the Socialists, the left's former flagship party, but reduced to a subsidiary role in last month's presidential ballot, confirmed a deal to join the broad coalition pact that the Greens and the Communists had already signed up to. Macron comfortably won a second presidential mandate, but he will need a majority in Parliament if he is to push through policies, including raising the retirement age to 65 from 62, opposed by both the left and the far right. So that's an instance of the left and the far right joining that they're they're based on that and they're correct. Macron um, wants to uh, he wants to change the retirement age to make people work longer. So he wants to raise it to 65 when it's currently 62. That's the sort of like enlightened centrism that pisses me off to no end because really it's just doing the, business, doing the bidding of the businesses. And they want people to work more. And he's like, okay, let me try to facilitate that. Melanchon finished a close third in the first round of the presidential election. And his La France Insoumise LFI party is now for the first time the left's dominant force a Eurosceptic, he said the alliance partners were targeting at least 290 of the 577 seats in the new parliament. They had agreed that under a leftist government, France would not exit the European Union or the euro, but that executing its election program would take precedence over respecting EU treaties. So as you can tell, they're Eurosceptic. They want to be more independent. They don't really view themselves as part of you know, the European Union project, and they think that um, whatever sort of laws and rules and regulations come from above them are kind of illegitimate, and they want their own sovereignty to be respected more. But obviously the deal that they cut here is like, well, we're not going to officially leave the European Union or the euro. We're going to stay with that, but we're going to sort of prioritize what we do here more 
then, you know, listen to them. Quote, call it disobedience or a moratorium. The bottom line is that the will of the French people will be respected, he told France too. Polster's initial projections show Macron's party, which was renamed Renaissance on Thursday, on track to win the June 12th and 19th ballots. But the surveys were carried out before the left-wing alliance was struck and before individual candidates were chosen by each camp for France's 577 constituencies. In recent French legislative ballots, the president's party has always won a majority in parliament. Should the outcome be different this time, Macron would have little choice but to name a prime minister from another party, ushering in what has traditionally been a tense period of cohabitation during which the presidential powers are severely curbed. That's what he's aiming for. That's what Mélenchon is aiming for. So, look, man, the thing that's really cool is that you have, these are disparate factions of the left that have, in many instances, very strong disagreements on policy. And also, there's some disagreement about the nature of the deal and how it was crafted and who gets shafted and who doesn't. Um, but this is the left united. Now, you guys know just as well as I do, because you're in the same space that I am, that that seems so foreign and that seems like something that would never happen here. You just look at the online left in the U.S. Everybody's always at each other's throats, and everybody's always arguing with everybody else, and everybody's casting aspersions on other people's motives, and, you know, you're a grifter, and you're a liar, and, you know, you're actually a right-winger, and it's just every, everybody hates everybody, and it's endless. It's going after each other and fighting these, what's the word, internecine battles, when, you know, the right is winning at every turn and the corporate Democrats are, you know, holding on with their iron grip to power for as long as possible. Um, This should give people some semblance of hope that these things happen in waves, man. Like there's there's, uh, extended time periods with more fracturing and factionalization, but then every now and then the tides turn. And, you know, people will view the cool based thing to do is like you work together with your fellow lefties, no matter the disagreements, because there's a common purpose for something bigger and something better and something broader. And the only way we're going to ever achieve that stuff is if we come together. And so it does sort of give me hope. You know, I'm sure there are many people in this left faction who I would disagree with a lot on a lot of different things. But the fact that they're coming together and the idea is let's curb Macron and push him further left and it might actually work. That's just really cool, man. That's just really cool. And just the one thing they cited of like, no, we're not going to raise the retirement age, Dippy. It's like, based, if you guys can come together to prioritize stuff like that, well, then in the long run, the left would be very powerful, where you kind of stay focused on the things that matter and don't get sidetracked and, you know, uh, end up arguing over BS that we really shouldn't be arguing over. So left solidarity, man, is a beautiful thing. It really is. And I'd like to see a hell of a lot more of it. I'd like for people to treat their fellow lefties, you know, kindly and um, extending the olive branch of, like, assuming people have pure motives, generally speaking. Uh, It should be a high bar before people think, like, you don't even mean what you say. You don't even have pure motives. You're just you know, a liar, whatever. So let's get a little bit more of that here in the U.S. And then in the long run, maybe, even though we don't have a parliamentary type system, maybe we'll notch some more victories for the left and maybe um, we'll actually get some positive change. But I'd be lying to you guys if I said this didn't give me some semblance of hope. There's, you know, there's a few things uh, in the modern era that have made me 
very happy. Uh, one of those things was, or is, this explosion of unionization. That's given me a lot of hope in, in an otherwise dark time politically. And um, to see this happen as well, put, put it in the W column, and let's go ahead and notch some more of them. Okay. Next. Next, next, next. Ah, I didn't mean to do that. Ah, okay. Now we'll do it. So Joe Biden and Kamala Harris met with uh, the Amazon Labor Union the other day and a number of other union organizers, and they actually met, uh, you know, my friend Chris Moss, who did a phenomenal job organizing uh, an Amazon warehouse in Staten Island. Now, unfortunately, in the second election, they ended up losing. But in the, the first election, Chris used to work there and knew all the ins and outs in the office politics and what, who's with who and what's this click and that click, et cetera. And so they were able to really, him and Derek, what's his last name, Derek Bell, I think it was, they were able to really work um, to get that warehouse unionized in a way that was beautiful. Now, he's, they're being contacted by basically, you know, Amazon warehouses all over the country. They're being contacted by Dollar Generals all over the country. People are really looking towards unionization now. And that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Let's hope that we notch more victories moving forward. The Starbucks workers are winning all over the place. Probably over 80% of the union elections they've held, they've won. Um, so that's, that's great. It's just, it's great stuff. So um, they invited Chris Smalls. The White House invited Chris Smalls. And they, what are they doing? Here, I'll, I'll tell you to the best of my ability, and my knowledge of the situation, here's what I think they're doing. I think they are, number one, trying to virtue signal and trying to appear, you know, like I'm the most pro-union president in American history. He's trying to portray himself that way, and the White House is trying to portray itself that way. And um, so they want to, you know, it's a wink and a nod. Hey, we kind of support organized labor to one extent or another. I also think they're kind of testing Chris Maltz and whoever else they invited there. Like, you cool? You good? Like, what's, what's the deal here? Um, because there are some unions and some union leaders all around the country who are, to one extent or another, corrupted by management. And um, these are a lot of big players in the Democratic Party. I think that this is just speculation, but I think that's why, you know, AOC and other lefties initially uh, – backed off from helping Chris Smalls because they said, oh, we're going to be there for you. You know, I want to help you with the union drive. And then AOC dipped at the last minute. My guess is other union leaders who are cozy with the Democratic Party um, told them, like, this thing is going to fail. You don't want to be associated with it. Don't tarnish your name for something that's not even going to work. So don't bother. Well, guess what? It worked. And after it worked, then finally everybody hops back on the bandwagon, you know, AOC, uh, started working with the ALU again, did a rally with Bernie Sanders. Now, I'm, ha I'm happy that they're there. They should have been there at the beginning. They weren't okay, but if Chris can squash the beef because now they're going to help here moving forward, then we all can squash it too and say, hey, we'll, we'll take yes for an answer. Thank you very much. But they're testing Chris. They want to see. Hey, man, you cool? What's going on here? Um, but Biden did something astonishingly two-faced. 
shouldn't surprise anybody, but it really is next level. Here we're going to watch a CNBC clip, and um, they're going to ask the Labor Secretary, I think his name is Marty Walsh, about a move that Biden's making at the same time he's meeting with Chris and other union members. Watch this. The vice president were there, I think, speaking with him at the White House. I think the president popped in, too, according to Chris Smalls. Um, he tweeted about it. He, of course, as you know, is the guy who kind of led that whole union effort at the Staten Island Amazon warehouse. Uh, Secretary Walsh, Amazon has been a recipient of some big federal contracts, as you know, something senators like Bernie Sanders and labor leaders have said should end. For a White House that says they back unions and are pro-unions, should, should you be awarding federal money to a company that is perceived as anti-union in this moment? I don't think we need to go there right now. What I think we need to do right now is encourage Amazon and Starbucks and other big companies in America that workers have taken a vote to organize and ask them to come to the table and sit down and, and, and work out in the ring with them. These are workers that work in an Amazon warehouse. These are workers that are working in Starbucks uh, and some other, other industries that were in my office today. But honestly, they, their employees have decided that they want to join a union, and they should respect the right of their employees. And what they should do right now, instead of stalemate, instead of trying to break the union, is sit down with these workers and try and come up with an agreement to move forward. And, and I would encourage all these companies to do that uh, because I, we're not at the point right now, I don't think, where, where we need to take any other action. It's really encouraging okay. both sides to sit down. At the same time, Biden was meeting with Chris Smalls and trying to get a photo op, too. Um, the White House was giving Amazon, I believe the number is a $10 billion NSA contract. What? What? Bezos already has huge contracts with the federal government. They were giving him another one at the same time they were meeting with the ALU and Chris Smalls. See, this is, I mean, nothing really demonstrates modern day establishment Democrat politics than that. I mean, that's the perfect encapsulation of modern-day Democratic politics. It's like, let me, you know, pantomime the right things, do some kabuki theater, do some acting, say I'm your friend, but then really it's a wolf in sheep's clothing. If you really want to tell Chris Smalls and really supported the ALU, there's a million things Biden could do. There's a million executive orders he can sign. He could push for the PRO Act, which is a phenomenal piece of pro-union legislation, and get that done. You can cut off. Bernie was putting pressure on Biden saying, hey, cut off all federal contracts to union busters unless and until they recognize the union and stop union busting. And he doesn't do it. So substantively, the only thing Biden has done is have an NLRB, National Labor, Labor Relations Board, that is pro-union. And so when you have um, the union busting happening, from management, they actually go after management and crack down. Now, unfortunately, they don't have enough teeth. They're understaffed. And so the union busters know they're going to get away with most of the shit that they're going to get away with. They know they are. And so they take, you know, liberties with that. So, but, okay, his NLRB is better than Trump's. Good. But you got to do more, man. you got to do more. Not this virtue signaling, I'm going to meet with you, I'm going to backslap with you, I'm going to try to get a photo op, which might also help me in my reelection campaign. you got to do more than that. And so my guess is the test of Chris Smalls from Kamala Harris and Joe Biden, they learned very quickly, oh, he's the real deal. He ain't going to play ball. He's not going to play ball. There was a great clip that went viral of uh, Chris Smalls pressing Lindsey Graham because he testified in front of 
uh, Senate committee. And he said in no uncertain terms, hey, man, this is not in any way, shape, or form a left or right thing here. What we're doing is trying to organize the workers. We don't care about their politics. What we care about is organizing the workers. We want health care, better benefits, better pay, a safer work environment. And so it's not about left. It's not about right. It's about workers having a better work environment and getting better pay for all the effort they put in. That's what this is about. And he's right. He busted up Lindsey Graham on that. And that's why he's been a very good union organizer is because he knows what to do. He knows the steps to take to get us from point A to point B and to get people um, supporting unions. And so, again, I wish him uh, the best moving forward. I hope they notch a whole bunch more victories. And uh, I hope everybody in the union movement has their eyes wide open about what this Biden administration really does. They will virtue signal with the best of them. But then when it comes to policy, they'll do half measures at best. All right, final story. So this is something. We have uh, Democrat Chris Murphy. He's a Democratic senator. And um, he's talking to Brett Baer here on Fox News about Roe versus Wade. And he is going to contradict himself instantly. So on the one hand, he argues, look, purity tests are extreme. I don't want to do them. I just want more Democrats elected. I don't really care about the flavor of the variety of Democrats. And then he takes the opposite position Two seconds later, this is really astonishing. Let's watch, and then I'll tell you why this contradiction exists and why he said what he said. Sanders also says he supports a primary challenge to moderate Kirsten Cinema. Um, do you? Because she's against uh, getting away with the doing away with the filibuster. I, I don't mind having a, a, a big tent, right? We can sort of argue these issues inside our party. I don't ever expect that we're going to have every single Democrat uh, in the United States Senate supporting the same rule set that I support. I just think we should elect more Democrats. Um, that's how we're going to solve this problem. Um, uh, elect Democrats uh, in this uh, November election. But not for a lot of Who are going to support choice and support uh, changing the laws of this country. Yeah, so that, not that big tent. Pro-choice candidate. Well, I support pro-choice candidate. I got it. So that's, that, that, that's my prayer. Um, I love that. You could see on his face at the very end there that he knows he just contradicted himself. He makes this face of like, mm, didn't I just make the opposite point? Mm. So let me explain this. Bernie Sanders saying he's cool with primary and Kirsten Cinema. The re- reason he says that is because Kirsten Cinema is basically a Republican. You know, when you look at her voting record, when you look at Manchin's voting record, 538 tracks this. In the age of Trump, how often did uh, various politicians vote with Trump? And with Manchin overall, he voted 50% of the time with Trump. There was even one legislative session where he voted 60% of the time with Donald Trump. So that is a Republican. That's a moderate Republican is what that is. Um, but Kirsten Cinema is the same. I don't know her number off the top of my head, and I never looked up her number, but I would imagine it's somewhere in the ballpark of uh, where Manchin is, maybe a little bit less. Who knows? Um, so, of course, Bernie's going to be okay with primarying these people because he cares more than your average politician about the substance. He cares about, you know, getting climate change legislation done and getting universal pre-K and getting free college and, you know, $15 minimum wage, all these things. Uh, many of them Kirsten Cinema was against and killed Bill back better with, along with Joe Manchin. Bernie cares about that stuff, and he wants to get it done. So he's like, yeah, of course, I would support uh, primary opponent against Kirsten Cinema. Chris Murphy goes into colleague protection mode 
well, you know, the thing was, I was thinking me and Craig and them was down by the Safeway and the sun was in my eyes. And I like, you know, I just think I'm a big tent guy and I think we need a big tent with people don't have to agree with me on stuff. You know what I'm saying, bro? And I just want to like more Democrats, just more Democrats. So he's kind of admitting I'm just a partisan hack. I don't even care about the policies. I care about just are you part of my party? If you disagree with me on everything within my own party, that's, that's fine as long as you're a Democrat. So that is a big tent approach, and I'm against purity tests. And then in the very next sentence, he's like, pro-choice Democrats I support, pro-choice, not pro-life, pro-choice. Wait, 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 what happened? You were just talking about a big tent. You were just talking about a big tent. You were just making the opposite point. And now you're saying, well, I do have a purity test, and it's on the issue of abortion. So why is this happening? Why, and by the way, a number of politicians, are, Democratic politicians, are exactly like Chris Murphy where they'll make the Big Ten argument, and it's okay, as long as you're a Democrat, we can have in all these ideological, diverse perspectives. And then they'll be like, but pro-choice, but pro-choice. So why? Why is that? The answer is very simple, guys. On social issues and on the issue of abortion, there is no big money lined up in favor of the pro-life position. There is no giant pro-life lobby that's giving Democratic politicians money. It doesn't exist. If anything, the money's lined up on the other side of it, on the Democratic side, where you have like a bunch of groups, whether it's Planned Parenthood or, or NARAL or whatever, they're pro-choice, Emily's list, and they give money to the politicians. So there is a financial incentive for them to actually take the pro-choice position. On the other issues, like on economic issues, where Kirsten Cinema is always blocking progress, the Democrats have a financial incentive to agree more with Kirsten Cinema, and not be for Medicare for All, and not be for a living wage, and not be for universal pre-K, you know, not be for unions. So they actually, ideologically, the overwhelming majority of the Democrats are pro-choice, and the money lines up for them to be pro-choice. On economics, a lot of them virtue signal like they're in favor of left-wing economic programs and social programs that help working people, but the money lines up against that. So the point I'm trying to make here is on the economic stuff, they're corrupted. They're bought by corporations. They're bought by billionaire oligarchs. So they might virtue signal about supporting a lot of these you know, left-wing uh, economic programs. But then when push comes to shove, they either support half measures of that or don't support it at all. And so that's why you get this contradiction here. They're freed up to actually argue in favor of left-wing social positions because there's either no money involved in it or there's money coming from the left-wing side of it. So there they're like, yeah, I'm pro-choice, and I'll have a purity test around that. But you don't have any purity tests around economics. You don't have one around Medicare for All. You don't have one around free college. You don't have one around a living wage or the PRO Act. You don't have one around universal pre-K or elder care. You don't have one around extending the child tax credit. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? So in other words, they go where the money goes. Yeah, we're allowed to have purity tests around this issue because the money's all on one side of this issue. On the other issue, no purity tests. No purity tests on economic stuff because we get paid to be economically conservative, relatively speaking. Mm. Look, the real, the, my perspective on this is very clear, and I've told you guys a million times. I don't have any purity tests around character. I don't care about purity of character. I care about purity of policy. And so I do have beliefs that I strongly hold on most things 
where I want somebody I'm going to vote for to line up with at least some of those things and to actually mean it authentically. These guys are just, they've never really thought these things through in any serious way. They don't really have a philosophical approach. They're just sort of going with the wind. And this is an instance where the, we have a big tent, we don't believe in purity test position, butted right up against, well, on, on abortion we do. Because when there's no money involved, or the money's on the left-wing side of it, well, then I'm freed up to actually care about this issue. Whereas the, on the economic ones, nope. Doesn't happen. So it's amazing. It's very rare that somebody destroys themselves and their entire worldview in under a minute and instantly contradicts themselves. But that's exactly what Chris Murphy just did. All right, guys. We are done with the show, baby, baby. I love you all. I'll talk to you soon. Everybody have a great rest of your day. Peace.